I very distinctly remember taking uh, this uh, you know class at Kellogg which was uh, around uh, leadership and biases that leaders tend to have a hindsight bias in the sense that they end up glamorizing their journeys a lot more than it actually was and uh, you know I'm going to try and not do that and make that mistake this time around and be very true in terms of you know at least narrating the account of my journey in all honesty i don't think you know we had absolute clarity and i think most people do not right i think you all you need is a starting point and the starting point here is our theme for season 3 of family in business entrepreneurship in family enterprises hi My name is Esther Choi, the executive producer and your host of the John Elward Center for Family Enterprises' own podcast series, Family in Business, a podcast that features stories of leaders, their families, and the family enterprises they transformed. There are a lot of stories of relentless, singularly focused entrepreneurs out there. The arc of these stories more or less is the same. They are about people who want to solve problems. As they set out to find solutions, they are met with countless setbacks. They met people who helped or thwarted their progress, but through sheer determination, hard work, and some luck, eventually they win. They all win in the end. Reality, what you see and hear is not always what you'll get. Entrepreneur stories rarely follow the single story arc, and much less a sure path to success. And so, in season three of Family in Business, we want to offer you five stories, each with very divergent story arc. Our guests, all Kellogg alumni, have embarked on their entrepreneurial journey in the context of family and family in business. We want to share a more complete picture of entrepreneurship in family enterprises, so you can be more prepared for your own journey. So let's start with Kartik's story. Who is Kartik? I'm Kartik Wahi. Currently, I'm affiliated to two organizations. One is, of course, the family business where I'm I'm, a, I'm an active advisor now, and I am the founder and the director at Claro Energy. Which is the company that I co-founded with a Kellogg classmate back in 2011. I've been founder at multiple companies, and one of which was uh, FNV Agri Technologies Private Limited, primarily a, a technology-enabled agri-commerce business focused in India. This was a platform, a technology platform that was matchmaking farmers with mom and pop stores that would sell fresh produce. Unfortunately. After three and a half years, uh, COVID hit, and uh, you know that of course dealt a heavy blow to the business, and we had to eventually shut shop. But uh, lots of lessons there. As a serial entrepreneur and came from a family business, Kartik's story will get complex pretty quickly. Not only that, Kartik the person also embodies a few contradictions. For example, one. He was once named one of India's hottest young entrepreneurs, but he wouldn't say a word during my interview with him about any of his awards and accolades. Two, he was bit by the entrepreneurial bug early on in his career, but he would be the first one to tell you, "Pursue your venture, 
but don't listen to too many other stories. And then finally, three, he grew up in a family business, and yet he chose not to work in it. Hmm. We will unravel these contradictions over the course of this episode, but first, I have a nagging question. The theme of the season is entrepreneurship in family enterprises, but... When you put the words entrepreneurship and family business together, isn't that kind of an oxymoron? So in the founding generation, they're synonymous, right? That's Dr. Jennifer Pendergast, our show's advisor and the executive director for Kellogg's Ward Center for Family Enterprises. If you're an entrepreneur first, and then if you decide to perpetuate the business across generations, you become a family business. I think traditionally and stereotypically, people think of families as becoming risk averse. So I gain a certain amount of success and then I become less entrepreneurial. I don't want to change, become locked in. I don't innovate. However, two things. One, I believe that's inaccurate from the standpoint of the families that are most successful over time, because what we see is, and research actually shows that families that are in business a long time pivot. So they go in and out of different industries. They acquire businesses. They start businesses. They're willing to let go of businesses. And so they actually are entrepreneurial. Contrary to these lingering misconceptions, successful multi-generational family enterprises are entrepreneurial because they tend to go in and out of different industries. They acquire businesses. They start businesses. And here's one part that isn't talked about often enough, that they're willing to let go of businesses. The act of letting go of something near and dear to you, to your family or livelihood or to your identity, isn't something that gets talked about often enough. We'll connect this point with Kartik's journey eventually too, but for now, let's go back to the rest of his story. How did he end up being on the entrepreneurial path in the first place? I'm an engineer by background. And, you know, my first job out of engineering school was, uh, not surprisingly, with a very large engineering company in India. And uh, this was a diversified company. And I spent uh, a couple of years doing multiple things, right from product designing to pre-sales to eventually doing sales. Got really tired of it very quickly. And I guess the the entrepreneurial calling happened quite early in my career. I jumped ship. We already had a family business. Then my father had been running it for 20 years. And I just used that as a foundation to really help the business, the family business grow and not just grow it, diversify into new product verticals as well. I guess all of this made for a great story for business school. I uh, was fortunate enough to get accepted into Kellogg. I had a great time there, honestly. I think it... Kellogg truly and fundamentally shifted my worldview. I think I, despite all the experiences I'd had, I was fairly tunneled vision still before Kellogg. And I think Kellogg is where everything just fundamentally changed for me. Most certainly in this, in the way I would look at enterprise building and the kind of stuff that I would uh, pursue subsequently. What fundamentally got me to really look at, you know, building a new enterprise in a sunrise sector, uh, in a new industry, wherein, you know, we didn't have any incumbents and which was renewable energy. So right out of Kellogg, uh, I managed to convince a classmate of mine and the two of us got together to set up uh, Claro Energy, 
which is uh, a social enterprise focusing largely on uh, small and marginal farmers, uh, helping them access renewable energy-based uh, irrigation. And uh, we've been doing that for a very long time now, 12 years uh, and running. And, uh, you know, proud to say that we've covered the length and breadth of India, at least in terms of making some of these things accessible to farmers. In all honesty, I don't think, you know, we had absolute clarity. And I think most people do not, right? I think you all you need is a starting point. And for us, the starting point was the fact that we saw renewable energy and, in, and within renewable energy, particularly solar energy, as a sunrise technology that was going to solve all of, you know, the world's climate problems, so to speak. I remember that, you know, the CEO of First Solar back in the day, it was a celebrated solar energy uh, company already worth more than a billion dollars back in the day. And the CEO was there for one of the lunch and learns. And I, I, I distinctly remember I, I knew very little about the industry. And that was the first talk which fundamentally kind of got me to get anchored to the opportunity. So we started with wanting to pursue opportunities in this space. And I think after a lot of trial and error, uh, a lot of iterations, a lot of failures, we ended up zeroing in on this one particular application of solar, which was uh, running irrigation pumps. And I think from the time we decided on the industry to the time we actually finally zeroed in on the application, I think that time was about a year and a half. So much like how you would expect everything to fall in place uh, exactly as per the Excel model that you've put together for your uh, business plan, uh, I think the converse is exactly true, right? So funnily enough, I think most peers, uh, most entrepreneur peers that I talk to, I think all of them have a similar story. There's not one person who's still working on the same thing that they, they started out with. That's how we got hooked to renewable energy and then eventually zeroed in on irrigation as an application. Did you have any agricultural background personally or somewhere along the line? No, we did not. But, you know, India is a very agriculture heavy country, right? And so while I, I personally do not have a background in this space, but I do have insight into India as an opportunity, right? And I think that was also the driver to kind of, you know, try and move back and pursue something entrepreneurial, because I think this was a, a market that we understood, uh, both in terms of the opportunity, the landscape, and also cultural context, right? I mean, I think that's also very important when you're trying to put together a business model that works with multiple stakeholders. And I always felt that, you know, Moving into traditional industries is always going to have the, we probably will run into the issues of uh, dealing with large, much larger incumbents, right? I mean, companies that have been doing that same thing for a while. I think with a sunrise uh, or with a new age industry, which was still kind of, you know, taking birth in some sense, right? We really had to not worry about incumbents. I think as an early mover, despite being fairly small in size, we were actually thought leaders at least, if not leaders by scale. That was definitely something that we were very conscious of in terms of wanting to pursue opportunities in new sectors and new uh, areas that were emerging. There's a German saying, a farmer doesn't eat what a farmer doesn't know. Notice here that the path that led Kartik to solar power irrigation, despite his lack of experience in the space, are actually because the opportunity checked a number of boxes for him. One, no incumbents. Two, new technology. Three, renewable energy. And four, important to India. 
is by spotting these disparate and yet related realities that he found his sweet spot. Still, it must not be easy to get the venture off the ground. How did you finance something like this? It's not inexpensive. Now imagine when you graduate from a top business school, uh, you know, with a really hefty student loan, of course, and still choose to go down the path of setting up a new venture. I think it was it was extremely challenging. The, the school was exceptionally kind in terms of offering us all the flexibility in terms of our repayments. So, you know, I think that really kind of, you know, eased the burden on us uh, financially, so to speak. But specific to the venture, I can say that uh, the first year was beg, borrow and steal. I mean, well, at least not steal for sure. But I think we were, you know, reaching out to friends and family and uh, uncles and aunts and whoever else we could kind of get our hands to, to, to really kind of, you know, bankroll us uh, through our first year. And I think also, all the more because I think the first year was particularly challenging. But, you know, by the end of it, we'd found our initial success. And I think that's what we needed. And and subsequently, over the course of our journey, you know, we've we've been fortunate enough to at least had the ability to unlock all forms of capital. So, you know, we've been successful in raising, uh, you know, grant capital. We've found incredible success in unlocking unsecured debt, which was unheard of in India. Then we raised, uh, you know, two rounds of institutional financing, equity capital as well. I think, and all of this happened incrementally. I, I wouldn't even dare to say that, you know, we had the best business plan and, you know, VCs were dying to put money into us, none of that stuff. It's been a long, arduous journey, but incrementally, because we were at it for such a long time and we were relentless, uh, persevered uh, on all of those fronts, we were able to unlock all of these different kind of, you know, forms of capital. Unlocking all those different forms of capital was not the only milestone. In 2013, just two years after co-founding Claro Energy, Business World, a leading business publication named Kartik Wahi, one of India's hottest young entrepreneurs. And in 2017, he was awarded the Asian Entrepreneurship Award, hosted by the University of Tokyo and Mitsubishi Photosan in Japan. So raising capital and collecting accolades are important external validations. But what about financial milestone? Turns out a straightforward question didn't lead to a straightforward response. What are your markers for financial success? In some sense, I think Kellogg also contributed to romanticizing the idea of entrepreneurship in my head. For sure, I think, you know, given the kind of reference points that one gets access to, uh, to interact with, to speak with, to hear, uh, you know, at all the lunch and learns that we would have. Invariably, I think it it affects, you know, the way you look at, uh, you know, your own career goals and most definitely in the way you're envisioning the enterprise that you probably want to set out to build. I have no qualms in admitting that, you know, for me, everything was potentially encapsulated in my Excel model and my PowerPoint deck, right? If it made sense there, I, in my head, was assuming that, you know, it would make sense on the ground as well, right? You know, when none of that was true. And and to be honest, I think early on, the markers of success were very different. And I think markers of success were purely financial in nature. 
I think it's only with time as we matured as individuals, as we learned from our experiences and most certainly from the mistakes that we were making, I think our concept of success became a little more holistic and certainly kind of added on dimensions beyond just the financial markers. I think the first few years, I think all founders were possessed with scale or at least wanting to kind of hit a certain top line and a bottom line. We were possessed with the idea of compulsively raising venture capital, right? Like most of our peers, right? I think, you know, because the narrative, unfortunately, across the world, even today, is so heavily sort of indoctrined around, uh, you know, raising external equity capital that, you know, for most people, I think that becomes the only yardstick for success because that's the headline that you want to go out there and announce and very few people actually really focus on the fundamentals and build a really viable business that's creating value for all stakeholders. I think we were as enamored by all of this as as everyone else was. And, uh, you know, we made our share of mistakes. And then, of course, with time, we all matured. So to answer your question, what was only a purely financial way of looking at success, I think it became a little more holistic. I think we did not start out as wanting to be a social enterprise only once we re- truly started realizing the impact that our work was bringing to people on the ground. I think in some sense, it affected the DNA of the organization. And I think it was actually a journey to becoming a social enterprise at heart than actually wanting to build a social enterprise at the word go. And in letting go of the notion that raising big capital and reaping big profits are not the only markers for financial success, Kartik has in some way come full circle to his family business roots, and that is value creation for all stakeholders. When we come back from a break, we'll see how Kartik's journey of entrepreneurship, even though it's apart from his family business, is very much rooted in his family business. I think it's worth mentioning my father's journey as well, you know, very briefly for the simple reason that I think we've actually always been a family of entrepreneurs. So my grandfather used to work in the textiles industry. So he used to manufacture uh, carpets and uh, blankets. And uh, so this was back in the 50s and 60s. So when my father had graduated from college, he actually joined his father, my grandfather, and worked with him for about 15 odd years. And then, of course, that business was going through some difficult, challenging times. And then he quit that. He moved cities and then started a new venture from scratch. So in that sense, I think he has been a bit of a serial entrepreneur. And I think it's important to draw this parallel because, you know, we, we started this, in, this this discussion with, you know, a conversation around what is the context of the journey? How it have been the, you know, contextual influences consciously or subconsciously in my journey? And I think witnessing or at least hearing about their entrepreneurial journey, uh, both firsthand and through kind of, you know, extended family, has certainly influenced me in terms of my desire to wanting to become an entrepreneur. So your father started when he was 40? Yes. So he was 40. So, you know, I, it was early 1991. He had, we were in a very small city called Amritsar in, in, in the northwest of India. He quit and he moved to Delhi. And uh, 
very challenging times for the family and we of course moved with him back in the day yeah so he started again very small very frugal a small manufacturing business in the electrical industry and then of course bit by bit slowly and also i think because you know we were you know me and my sister were fairly young i think he really took a beating on his risk appetite because he was starting up quite late in his journey with of course a lot of people who squarely depended on him my mother and the two of us so he started when he started out he was basically you know a very small manufacturer of components that he would make which would go as inputs into other industries right so let's say for example you pick up any product let's say you know a, a mobile phone right i'm sure it has a plastic part somewhere inside or a, a metal sort of plate which is a heat transfer application or something so he would make those really small components industrial components and supply it to different companies and i think slowly he graduated and moved up the value chain to eventually he started original equipment manufacturing oem manufacturing for global brands in hindsight i think what i have really learned from him particularly from his tech second innings is he's an incredible operator i think he's he runs such a tight ship that i think he'd put probably put the best mba graduates to shame right so <laughs> uh, and you need that right i think you know you to be able to kind of you know build an enterprise which truly creates value and i think even after 30 years i'm just fascinated by how a very modest sized business can churn out so much value right and what do you mean by create incredible values two things one of course from a purely financial sense value is around a company that generates in an incredible bottom line the other thing i feel and this again is i have never seen like something like this happen ever and particularly for these two things so when we talk of value i kid you not the average tenure of people in his organization is 25 years so as a kid when i used to go visit his facility i still till date see the same set of faces that i used to see back in the day and you know the fact is that for a small enterprise to have such an incredibly successful rate of retention is only possible if you're creating value for those employees at a fundamental level right they need to kind of you know really feel that they are part of the journey both the upside and the downside and it's in all honesty it's not just about the the financial compensation that you offer to some of these people but also in terms of you know how you kind of you know engage with them how do you kind of respect them despite you know all of them coming from modest backgrounds and this is again something that i've only come to appreciate lately having run an organization myself having learned first hand how hard it is to one put together a team and how even harder is to kind of retain it with you and to be able to retain and and have an average tenure of about 25 years for a small enterprise is just mind numbing to me honestly so much to learn from him in that sense my understanding of value has also fundamentally shifted from just being purely financial in nature but truly i think an ent- enterprise that creates value for all stakeholders i would say should be the yardstick for success for anyone and not just you know value for the shareholders or the owners or the promoters
What would Kartik consider as some of his most important lessons learned from his entrepreneurial journey? I think top line is definitely vanity. I think you know most founders will chase vanity metrics. The singular metric that matters in the life cycle of any organization is actually cash flow, right? The singular piece of advice that came from my father and has still date, I think that's fundamentally entrenched in everything that he says, is that just focus on your cash flows. Everything else will fall in place. And this is, you know, my father who's barely a graduate and has run small and medium enterprises all his life and giving me the exact same wisdom that Professor Rogers would say. So it's it's quite funny, ironic, profound, to be honest, that uh, oftentimes I think there's just so much wisdom out there, wisdom that is available to us for free throughout our lives, but we just look through it or, just, you know, don't pay enough heed to it. In fact, one of my learnings, you know, from my journey has been that I think all the wisdom that was ever given to be my by my elders was all true. I have, of course, discounted most of it whenever it was shared with me. But now, in retrospect, I think all of it was absolutely spot on. I think all of it was coming from a place of incredible experience and mistakes and first-hand knowledge. Maybe perhaps they didn't have the right ways to communicate. So for anyone out there who's listening, I think if there is a piece of wisdom that comes your way, hold on to it. Try and figure out ways to internalize that wisdom uh, because that's going to really come handy. Now, I can no longer hold myself back. I need to point out the pink elephant in the room. Kartik's father has been running such a successful, value-driven business. Kartik worked in the business before Kellogg and has been an active advisor in the business after Kellogg, helping with important transitions such as hiring the first non-family CEO. So why doesn't Kartik work for his father's business? Or help him expand the business? Why start something in a completely different sector apart from his family business? I have to be honest that I think one of the reasons, even the thought of trying to kind of, you know, join the family business and really grow it or use it as a foundation to build a a larger enterprise never occurred to me because in my head, it was just not glamorous enough. For being in an, an extremely commoditized business, I think the fact that he runs the ship so tightly and so efficiently allows it to kind of, you know, really have much higher than industry returns uh, when it comes to the bottom line, EBITDA in particular, right? And I, I think I could just squarely attribute him to just his operating style. I don't think I could ever live up to that, right? I mean, uh, you know, the joke in the family often is that, you know, if, if I were to play his role, I'd probably destroy value. <laughs> so <laughs> He's a taskmaster. He's a hard man to work with. Because he will really hold you to very, very high standards. Sometimes I, I, I tell him that I think the fear of working with him got me to kind of run away from the family business. But, but no, you know, I think for sure when he hears this, he is going to probably, you know, truly feel for the. I don't think I've ever told all of this to him. Probably kind of, you know, this is all coming organically to me. By no means am I alone. I think there are thousands and probably hundreds of thousands of such stories out there uh, waiting to be told and heard. 
you know, there are all these small and medium enterprises that are again, value enterprises or value generators in terms of, at least in terms of being viable, profitable enterprises that are run by uh, first generation entrepreneurs. Now, all of them might not be in very glamorous sectors. I mean, they could be mom and pop stores, they could be small manufacturing outfits, manufacturing from anywhere from industrial components to, you know, shoes or bags or what have you. And they're all kind of, you know, stuck in the range of when it comes to scale from, let's say, anywhere between, you know, a million dollars in revenue to, let's say, $20 million in revenue. So large enough to be significant, but not quite kind of, you know, be able to kind of, you know, build a truly professional uh, management that can kind of, you know, run the business like any other professional outfit at scale. I like to call that, you know, all of these businesses are in something called the valley of death because, uh, you know, they're great enterprises creating a lot of value. But in the absence of, uh, you know, a, a second generation taking them over, uh, they're likely to kind of, you know, die in a slow death. And that's so much value lost, right? I, I think an entire generation had to kind of, you know, be spent in terms of uh, a lifetime for some one individual to take the enterprise to where it was. I think if nothing, it serves as an incredible platform for you to kind of, you know, build a much larger sort of enterprise on top of. Value of death. That is certainly depressing. To think that there are so many of these efficient, profitable, and value-generated small to medium family enterprises that aren't having the next generation taking over. Why is that? I think that's the point of view that gets missed I was guilty of having overlooked that as well uh, because I wanted to kind of, you know, write my own glory, right? I wanted to kind of, you know, prove to someone that I had it in me also to build an enterprise from scratch. Wherein I think the smarter thing to do, of course, is to kind of, you know, leverage what you already have, leverage something that has already consumed a lifetime of someone and then play to your strengths and really kind of, you know, do a much better job at, uh, you know, building that enterprise rather than, completely overlooking it. By no means am I suggesting that people should not start out at all. I'm just saying that I think family enterprises and particularly small and medium family enterprises deserve a lot more love than they actually get. And it is not just value lost that is the issue here. There's something else too. Here's Jennifer again. I see a growing trend in next generation of family members being much more interested in being entrepreneurial than following the path of the family. And it's this desire to create a chapter of the legacy that's my own and make my mark and hopefully increase the relevance of the business. The world changes more and more quickly, right? And businesses become less relevant more quickly. And so I think over the past few decades, it's become more important to be able to change and to innovate because traditional business models are being challenged. We have a next generation of you know family entrepreneurs coming up that are much more motivated, excited by the idea of doing something differently, making their mark. In other words, there are two major shifts converging that would impact family enterprises in more than one way. On the one hand, the world is changing at a quicker pace and thereby making businesses or at least business models irrelevant quicker. On the other hand, there is a growing trend in the next generation of family members wanting to leave their own distinct mark on their family business legacy. 
How can family business leaders ride this next wave of change while leveraging the different assets that took a lifetime or generations of lifetime to build? That is in the next two episodes of Family in Business. Thank you for tuning in to Family in Business, a podcast sponsored by the John L. Ward Center for Family Enterprises at the Kellogg School of Management. Thank you, Kartik Wahi, co-founder and director of Claro Energy Private Limited. Our show is supported and advised by Dr. Jennifer Pendergast, executive director of Kellogg's Ward Center for Family Enterprises. Kane Power is our podcast engineer, and I am Esther Choi, Kellogg Class of 2009, CEO and Chief Story Facilitator of Leadership Story Lab, and the author of the book, Let the Story Do the Work. <laughs>